Father God, uh, thank you again uh, for this opportunity to open up your word. And uh, again, I ask, as I do every week, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would uh, guide my words, uh, that I would faithfully proclaim your word, and uh, Lord, that uh, your word would um, impact us, Lord, that uh, we, would, we would be changed, or we wouldn't just be filled with more head knowledge, Lord, but it would, it would be truths that we live by, that we uh, believe, and, and uh, uh, Lord, that we uh, act on. So again, I thank you so much. I pray that you bless this time for your glory. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, if you go ahead and uh, take out your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, we are continuing our series looking at the book of Philippians, which technically is not a book. It is, in fact, a letter, an ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in the city of Philippi, which was located in the northern part of Greece in a region called Macedonia. Uh, Ten years prior to writing this letter, Paul visited the city of Philippi. He presented the the gospel. People responded to the gospel, and uh, a church was planted. And God blessed that church. Not only did it grow numerically, but it also grew spiritually. It was a very spiritually mature church. Uh, In fact, uh, decades after even Paul dies or is killed, um, a, a pastor by the name of Polycarp Uh, is writing a letter to other churches. And he mentions Philippi as an example of what a good church looks like. He's like, look at this church. This is what a maturing church looks like. You know, they, they, they love scripture. They're studying scripture. They're working together. They're loving. They're very generous. Um, It was a great church. And so, uh, so Paul plants a church there, and, and uh, it was a pretty interesting group of individuals, if you remember, uh, a fashionista, you know, lady uh, designing a purple material, uh, possibly a slave girl, and then also a uh, blue-collared soldier, uh, Roman guard, and that was like kind of the core group in their households, and it was, you know, individuals that you really wouldn't see hanging out, you know, at a coffee shop, you know, it's just like, I don't, but they're hanging together because of Christ and they're, they're serving together and God blesses them. 10 years go by or so and, and Paul is in prison and um, uh, he uh, is in prison. You have, the prisoners had to rely on donations from family and friends in order to meet their basic needs. And uh, we don't know the extent, but Paul is in need. And uh, he receives a visit from a, a friend, Epaphroditus, probably a, one of the leaders in this church in Philippi. And Epaphroditus has just traveled over 630 miles, mostly on foot. He almost died because he got sick along the way, but he's there to present Paul with an amazing gift. It's a gift that meets Paul's needs. And so Paul, in all of his excitement, he gets his pen and paper or whatever they used back then out, and he writes this letter. And he really has nothing bad to say. He's just writing this letter just to show how much he, he, he's thankful, he's appreciative, and, and, and he's wanting to encourage them and also just uh, uh, um, give them some further instruction because that's what Paul uh, did. Um, but in, uh, right at the beginning of, of chapter one, uh, Paul makes, you know, encourages them by saying, you know, I'm thinking of you a lot. I think of you often. I have great memories of you. And whenever I think of you, I thank God. I thank God because of you and I pray for you. And that prayer is filled with joy. Now, granted, or remember, Paul is writing this from prison. And yet he's saying, I'm experiencing joy right now. 
Why is he experiencing joy? Why is he praying with joy? And he goes on to say, because of your partnership in the, participation in the gospel. He uses that Greek word koinonia, which is where we uh, translate fellowship. And fellowship is much more than just a group of Christians just hanging out and having coffee. It's, it's much deeper than that. It's, it's a term that was used to describe uh, two individuals who go into business together. They're equally uh, um, committed, equally invested. They're equally working towards a goal. And so Paul's like, oh, that gives me joy. Gives me joy that you are in fellowship with one another. You're, you're living life together and you're working together for the, for the uh, cause of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. Another reason why he um, experiences joy is the fact that God is still at work in them. He says, the good work that God started with you, I am confident that he's gonna continue working and working and working until either you go to Jesus or Jesus comes back. That was worth, uh, that, that gave uh, Paul joy. And th- third, uh, he, he, he experienced joy uh, because of his affection, his love for this church. He says, I have the same affection towards you as Christ has towards you. And that word he uses for affection is, uh, could li- literally translate it to your bowels, your guts. It's that in deep in your guts kind of affection that Paul has for this church and so he prays for them and he prays that the love that they, that they demonstrate, continue to demonstrate. I mean, he's a recipient of that, of that love. In fact, um, out of all the churches in Macedonia, it was Philippi or the church in Philippi that provided multiple times uh, financially for, for Paul and his journeys. So Paul's like that, that love, my prayer is that that love that you have demonstrated toward me and towards each other, I pray that that love would overflow more and more. And that that love would be guided and directed by the knowledge and insight of God's word so you can make great decisions in your life and and stand before him as as blameless and sincere. And then now we come to uh, the next portion of our our passage, which is um, uh, starting at verse 12. And it's actually going to be a pretty long passage this morning. Uh, We'll be done by three o'clock. No, Um, but we're going to do, we're going to start at verse 12 and we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter, chapter one. Before we actually begin, I just wanted to add a a little bit more um, context, a little bit more history. Uh, I know some people are not really history buffs. I enjoy history. I I think history is really important. I think a lot of the issues we're dealing with right now are because of lack of history and lack of knowledge of history. Amen. Um, But, uh, uh, history helps us because uh, here, this letter that Paul's writing, he was, it's in the first century, 61 AD. We're reading it in 2021. So there's a little bit of a gap right there. And yes, it's true, as, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, but there's a little bit of different context. Paul was writing it uh, during the Roman Empire. We're reading it here in America. And so it's good to kind of know kind of how things went. So in, in the first century under Roman rule, um, the Romans had a way of doing things. They had a way of talking and behaving. They had this rhetoric and, and, this, and this rhetoric, uh, they, they, uh, it was inspired by the, the Greeks. It was started by Plato and Socrates. It was a way of, of, of how you speak, how you write letters and how you behave and that kind of thing. Um, and so the Romans kind of took that idea and they made it a law that every in, uh, educational institution in the Roman Empire had to teach this Roman rhetoric or this Greco-Roman rhetoric. Um, the, the goal was not just to have people to, who sound like Romans or to behave like Romans. They wanted to 
make Romans. They wanted people to assimilate and become Romans. That's why they, they saw this rhetoric as very, very important. And there were a couple of areas that they focused in on. Number one, the empire. For them, the empire was everything. Your loyalty had to be completely focused on the empire. The empire was the true source, the true beacon of hope and peace to the world. In fact, that's where the the term Pax Romana comes from, the peace of Rome, which is ironic because it was peace uh, by intimidation, by fear tactics, by uh, uh, destruction, really. The second um, area that they focused on was Caesar. Caesar wasn't just a guy, he was a god. He was declared Savior and Lord. If you wanted to experience salvation, you go and worship Caesar. The other area was gospel. The Greek word there is euangelion. It's good news. That's what it literally translates, the good news. And for the Romans, the good news was that of another Roman victory. It was that the fact that the Rome, Rome, the empire was still standing tall and strong and powerful, and that the emperor, emperor was still ruling and reigning. Um, In fact, they would actually send out messengers to proclaim the good news. They called them evangelists who'd go out and proclaim this good news all throughout the Roman Empire. Lastly uh, was citizen. Being a citizen, a Roman citizen was a a mark of, of honor, a badge of honor. Everyone wanted to be a Roman citizen because it came with perks and privileges. And for the the city in Philippi, it was a Roman colony. It was granted that title. And as a result of that, uh, that title, um, the, uh, uh, the citizens who lived there were automatically Roman citizens. And uh, yeah, so that, that was an incredible thing. So when you look at uh, the, the writings of Paul in particular, Paul brings up this rhetoric again and again and again. But the thing is, he doesn't use it the way the Romans use it. He doesn't use it the way the Romans use it. When it comes to the empire, for Paul, the empire wasn't anything, but God's kingdom was everything. It was all about God's kingdom, eternal kingdom. When it came to Caesar, Caesar wasn't Lord and Savior. That title only belongs to Jesus Christ. When it comes to the good news, well, it's not the good news of another Roman victory. It's the good news of Jesus Christ coming to this earth to save mankind. When it comes to being a citizen, he did not focus on your Roman citizenship. He focused on being a citizen of God's kingdom. And so because of this rebellious way or use of rhetoric, that caused a lot of issues with Rome. And so Paul is is in prison and, and he's awaiting his trial and he's writing this letter. And so we're going to go ahead and pick it up at verse 12. And we're going to go ahead and read the entire passage. Take a deep breath. It's a long passage. We're going to read it all the way to, I think it's like what, verse 30? Yeah. So here we go. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ uh, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice." 
Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the, whole, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ, even now as always, um, will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Um, this morning we're going to be bringing up the dreaded S word. It is a bad word for a lot of us. And that word is suffering. If you thought I was going to say something else, you need to repent right now. <laughs> you potty mouths or potty heads. We're talking about suffering. Um, there's a guy, his name is uh, D Deepak Chopra or Chopra. Uh, he's a, a pretty well-known motivational speaker. Mostly he's a mystic. He's a spiritual guru. And he's uh, written a number of uh, best-selling books you know, soul care and how to, to experience peace and prosperity in your life. But um, he once said that suffering is something our minds make up in response to pain. Uh, according to Eastern mysticism, suffering is an obstacle uh, that must be transcended. In one ancient writing, which Chopra holds in high regard, uh, the, that text says, uh, the subtle causes of suffering are destroyed when the mind merges back into the unmanifest. Now, what that ancient text is basically trying to say in a rather Jedi-esque kind of way is, oh, I'm sorry, I misinterpreted. That's... It's blah, 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 blah. It's just a bunch of garbage right there. I mean, come on. Honestly, you think your kid, your kid or your grandkid's gonna come to you and go, Mom, I, I got a cut on my hand. It's like, well, you need to transcend. Son, you, you, you need, your mind needs to merge back to the man, manifest or unmanifest. You think that's gonna work? No. Suffering is real. Suffering is real. It's not something that we make up. It's not something that we falsely convince ourselves of. It's not this strange um, protective response to try to deal with pain. Suffering is real. When it comes to God's word, God's word is honest when dealing with suffering. When, uh, the, the, the Karl Marx, a very famous communist, which 
Ironically, he's still pretty popular nowadays. But uh, Karl Marx uh, once said, uh, religion, and he was mainly referring to Christianity, religion is the opiate to the masses. In other words, it's similar to a a patient in a hospital uh, requesting from the doctor and the nurse, please pump me up with more morphine. It's like, oh, these, these, these Christians, these religious people, they don't, they don't have a spine. They're not strong enough to handle their pain. And so what do they do? They go to their God as a way to mask their pain, as a way to find, you know, numb the suffering that they're going through. And they try to you know, put on a happy face and positive think their way out of it while quoting scripture verses. That couldn't be further than the truth. The Bible is very honest about suffering. It takes suffering very seriously. In fact, roughly one-third of the Psalms are laments. This like raw, these raw, unfiltered expressions of suffering. I'd like you to take your Bibles and let's go to uh, Psalms 55. I want to look at one of these laments here by, uh, written by King David. Psalm 55. Give you some chance to go over there. <clears throat> so Psalm 55, we're going to begin at verse 1. This is again a psalm from David. Listen to my prayer, God, and do not hide yourself from my pleading. Give your attention to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and severely distracted because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. For they bring down trouble upon me and in anger they hold a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would flee far away. I would spend my nights in the wilderness. I would hurry to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and heavy gale. Skip over to verse 17. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and moan. You hear his voice, the tone of his voice there. I mean, David's not saying... I'm experiencing something that I'm making up for myself. He's like, well, I'm experiencing agony and pain that I must transcend. No. He's addressing the fact I'm experiencing pain. I'm experiencing suffering. And he is being brutally honest the fact that he is at the end of his rope. Help me, God. That's where he's at. Now, it's not hopeless because at the end of verse 17, after he says, I complain and moan, he says, and, and God will hear my voice. The Bible is honest when it comes to suffering. It treats suffering very seriously. It doesn't try to mask it. It doesn't try to, to numb it. The Apostle Paul was also not a stranger to suffering himself. Go to, uh, to the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So this is another letter that Paul is writing. And this is 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is basically defending his calling to to serve God as as an apostle because there are others who are saying they have the same kind of authority. And Paul's like, what? No, they're not. You're false teachers. And like, no, no, look at our credentials and look at how we live our life. And Paul's like, bring it on. 
let me show you some of my uh, qualities here. Um, we're going to start at verse 23 here of chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I'm speaking as if insane. He's like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but here we go. Are they servants of Christ? I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Okay, that's a grown person whipping you. Okay, uh, what is it? 39 times. And how many times did he experience that? Five. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's another grown men, strong men with big sticks beating you. Five times, oh no, three times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. They, they stoned him. They literally thought after they stoned Paul, they thought he was dead. And so they dragged his body out of the, the city and Paul you know, got back up and went back into the city, started proclaiming Christ. He was, he's, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent adrift at sea. Any volunteers for that? I've been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I think it's safe to say that Paul is an expert when it comes to suffering. Paul's a pretty good expert. He, he knows what it means to suffer. He's been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. He's experienced, muff, some, in some cases, he's experienced way more suffering than we have. And yet this guy had joy. This guy had joy, even in the midst of suffering. Remember, the definition of that joy, I, 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 my definition is, is a resilient gladness, right? It's much more stronger than just happy. Happy is a result of a happy moment. It's your birthday. My daughter celebrated her birthday, and, and that was happy. You know, we, you get a puppy, that's happy. Joy is experienced regardless of how good or bad the situation is. Paul experienced tremendous amount of suffering and yet he was joyful. How did that work? Paul was not only an expert when it comes to suffering, but particularly how as followers of Christ, we are to view and respond to our suffering. And so that's what he's gonna talk about in our, in our passage this morning. So let's go back to book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians chapter one. We've already read the entire section and now we're going to kind of, you know, we got the bird's eye view, we've landed the plane and now we're going to kind of walk on our feet. Um, take our time going through this. So Psalm, uh, Philippians chapter one, starting at verse 12. <clears throat> he says, now I want you to know, brethren, that I, I, I earnestly desire for you to know on a personal level that my circumstances, and in the Greek, it's literally according to me. Now, this is not just simply referring to the fact that Paul is in prison right now awaiting trial. This is reaching far back. This is talking about his life since following after uh, Jesus. 
He's all, everything that I've experienced in my, in my time serving Jesus, the good times and even those bad times, those times of pain and suffering, I want you to, I, I, I want you to know on a personal level that all of it has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The word that he uses for progress means advance or to fur- the furtherance of the gospel. It was a term used uh, by military to describe engineers who would go before the armies and clear away stones and rubble, debris, um, and trees, sometimes even entire forests. They l- would literally pioneer a road for the entire army to advance. And basically what, what Paul's saying is that Uh, everything in my life God has used, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, God has used it all to pioneer, to to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he gets more specific, verse 13, so that, and that's kind of a poor translation. It's not really telling you the the reason or the the purpose. It's, It's more of the result of this progress. And so he's getting really specific here. This could be translated, therefore, or thus, thus in my imprisonment in the cause of Christ. He's now bringing it back to where his current situation is. My imprisonment from the cause of Christ has become well known, has become clearly visible, apparent, evident throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. The Praetorians uh, guard were an elite group of of soldiers, um, sometimes I think about 9,000 of them. And it was very common for them to uh, literally chain themselves by the wrist to prisoners to watch them 24-7. And the soldiers would, you know, watch uh, these prisoners for a few hours. Then another soldier would come in, chain up to the prisoner for another 20, you know, few hours and so on and so forth. You think an amazing opportunity for Paul that he would have never gotten otherwise. I mean, if Paul would have just walked in to Rome and just started proclaiming the, 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 the gospel, these soldiers would have just been like, ah, oh, well, you know, that, nah, what are they talking about? Oh, it's another sect of Judaism. We've got more important things to do. Here he has their undivided attention. They're chained to him. You ain't going nowhere. <laughs> so I could just imagine though those guards sitting with Paul and saying, you know, Paul, you seem like a nice guy. Why are you really in here for He's like, well, I'm here for Jesus. I know you keep on saying that, but come on. Let's be real. Did you kill someone? Did you defraud someone? It's like, no, no, I am here because I believe Jesus is the Savior and Lord and King and not Caesar. I believe the good news is not about a Roman victory. I believe is the good news that Jesus came. He lived a life you and I will never be able to live. He lived a perfect life and he died and he took on himself the punishment that our sin rightfully deserves. And he rose again and he's ruling and reigning as the king of kings and Lord of lords. And he's gonna come back. And until then, he's, he's given us salvation freedom from all, or a, a forgiveness of all of our sins that we could never earn on our own. And it's out of grace. And if we receive this salvation, we experience true peace and true hope. That's why I'm here in the God, here in, in prison. And so he's saying the whole Praetorian Guard knows about this. They're aware. There's no confusion. Not only them, he says, but everyone else. No one else is like saying, I wonder why this guy's in prison. They all know. Paul's not there for murdering anyone. He's not there for defrauding anyone. He's not there for starting an insurrection. He's there because he follows Jesus. He then goes on. He says, um, and most, verse 14, and most of the brethren and majority of the brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, 
trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, again, the the book of Philippians is uh, written around 61 AD during the name, uh, the the reign of Emperor Nero. Um, Nero had a particular hatred for Christians. In fact, a few years after, like around 64, 65 AD, a fire breaks out in Rome. And Nero is just coincidentally at his little vacation house. But the city almost burns down to the ground. And rumor goes around, starts spreading around that uh, Nero allowed that fire to go to clear the way to build one of his like, you know, luxury penthouses or something. And so Nero's like, "Uh uh-oh, I got to deflect and easy target. It was the Christians. It was these atheists. They would call Christians atheists because they did not believe in the, the, the pantheon of gods. He's like, these people are not only a threat to Rome, but society, civilization itself. And that started this intense, intense persecution of the Christians where they were arrested, they were beaten, they were thrown into the gladiator arenas to be eaten by wild animals. They were dipped in pitch and lit as human torches. I mean, it was absolutely awful. But back in 61 AD, it may not have been that severe, but it was still bad. It was still bad. And it, it would make sense that a lot of these Christians, particularly in Rome, would have been tempted to be closet Christians. You know, I can't be really open about my faith because my goodness, if my family finds out, my friends, I'll lose that. I'll lose them. That's a great support system. I'll lose them. I'll lose my job. I might get arrested like this guy named Paul. But instead, these individuals, they see Paul in prison, suffering, experiencing joy even in the midst of that suffering and they are inspired. And so what do they do? They go and proclaim the gospel. The Greek literally could be read um, that these these, uh, Christians trusting in the Lord because of his imprisonment, being inspired because of his imprisonment are more exceedingly to dare fearlessly to speak the word. Ooh, that's like steel in your spine kind of stuff. It's amazing. There's a true story of, a, of an older uh, lady uh, who uh, had a debilitating illness. Uh, it, there was no cure for it, but it caused her to experience uh, tremendous pain every single day. Um, she was a follower of Jesus and uh, a, a single mom uh, with a son moved next door. And she was not saved. And so this older lady took it upon herself to befriend the neighbor and talk with her and invite her over and of course proclaim the gospel to her and uh at first the single mom was like well you know that's good that's good for you but it's really not my thing and but time went on and uh this woman was very impressed with her neighbor he she saw that this woman get up every single day in pain some days were more painful than others in tremendous pain and yet she had joy. She continued to pray. She continued singing hymns. She continued telling people of how amazing Jesus was or is. And that really had an impact on her. So much so that that woman ended up coming to know Christ. 
And after that, she obviously told, started teaching her husband about Jesus. And that, uh, not her husband, her son, husband, not son, son, started teaching her son about Jesus. And her son be, ended up becoming a, a, a follower of Jesus and grew up and became a very well-known, very well-respected scholar, biblical scholar and pastor. He traveled all over India and Africa and, you know, Japan, China, Philippines, and he, and he, he ended up, he was a, a, a pastor for many, many years. And uh, as a result of his ministry, many, many people not only heard the gospel, many came uh, to know Christ. Now, I can imagine, imagine someone were to visit that older lady and to tell her, you know, you're going to experience a lot of suffering in your life, a lot of pain. It's going to be bad. But your dedication to Christ in the midst of that suffering is going to have an effect on your neighbor who's going to be moving in next door. And she's going to come to Christ because of it. And then that woman is going to teach her son and that her son is going to go out and make a big, huge splash for the kingdom of God. Are you okay suffering? Her response would probably be, of course. It would be an honor. But here's the thing, that didn't happen. She never got someone to tell her that was going to happen at, at the end. In fact, she died many years before this young man came to Christ and did all these things. She didn't even see it. But she trusted that God was going to do something, that God was going to turn, make something bad into good. And it reminds me of a, of a passage, and this is something that probably everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people know, memorized, but Romans 8.28. I'm just going to go ahead, you guys can probably just recite it out of memory, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that God causes all things, not just some things, all things, whether it's good things or bad things, God causes all things to work together for good. For everyone? No. Specifically, to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. The challenge of this uh, particular passage is that many take the word good to mean happiness. That God works all things for my happiness. And that's not always the case. In Paul's eyes, God was taking this horrible situation, the suffering, the pain and suffering that he was going through. God was taking this horrible situation and turning in it to good. How? By advancing the gospel. By inspiring brothers and sisters in Christ to boldly, fearlessly proclaim Christ. And that caused him joy. He's like, I have joy because of that. James uh, chapter one, uh, it's another letter written to a group of Christians who are uh, going through a lot of persecution. And James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials or trials of various kinds. Count it all joy? Why? Because Paul goes on, uh, James goes on to say, because God is using it 
And that's what Paul's bringing up here is that God doesn't waste anything. If you are a follower of Christ, uh, God is uniquely invested in our lives. He's given us the Holy Spirit and he is working all things for good. Not necessarily for happiness, but for good, for his glory. And so what do we do? To count it all joy. In the book of James, he talks about you count it all joy when you're counting these, encountering these various trials because God's using it to grow you. It's amazing. Whoa. One, our daughter, uh, Autumn, her middle name is Joy. And we specifically named her that because it was, we found out we were uh, expecting her during a really rough time in our life. I was working three jobs. I was working at a church. I was working at a bookstore. And I was also working at an at a, a, a army base and just struggling. I couldn't hold on. I just was, you know, you're talking about big plate. My big plate was filled. And I'd come home and my kids would want to play with me. My wife would want me. And so it's just, it was a really rough patch. And all of a sudden, hey, guess what? You're, exper- you're, you're expecting another kid. And so we were going through this whole thing of you know, study of suffering and, and we came upon this passage and we were like, you know what? That's a great name. And so we named her Autumn Joy Lemos. Because of that, we count it all joy. Why? Because God's using it. God doesn't waste anything. Paul continues, verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm, I'm appointed here. I've been placed here specifically in prison for the defense of the gospel because he's going to one day you know, stand before Nero and make a defense. Uh, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. This idea of hostility, rival, rivalry, literally untowardness. It's the idea they're not for Peter, uh, Paul, they're against him. They do it out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress or more tribulation, more trouble, more uh, pressure in my imprisonment. So Paul's basically, you know, I am I, very, very grateful. I'm very, I'm experiencing joy. Why? Because I know the things I've experienced, even the bad things I'm, I suffered and currently suffer, God is using it to advance the gospel, which is awesome. Not only that, in my current situation, everybody knows about Jesus, which is awesome. And not only that, the Christians, the brothers and sisters in Christ are inspired to boldly proclaim Jesus. This is amazing. But he knows out of that group, there are some with bad motives. Now, again, he he refers to these individuals as brethren, which is a term specifically used for brothers and sisters, true brothers and sisters in Christ. So what he's describing here uh, is two groups. One of those groups of Christians isn't acting very Christian. (gasps) That must be a revelation for some of you. Really? Christians behaving badly? Unfortunately, sometimes that happens. These Christians are, have envy and strife. It's, it's this idea of jealousy, ill will, contention. 
they just, I don't know what it is. They just don't like Paul. They're jealous. We see this sometimes in our churches today. You know, one pastor is, you know, jealous of the church next, you know, down the road. It's like, oh my goodness, why are they so big? You know, they're, all these people are attending and they don't even have that great of a worship team. And oh my goodness, and they, oh, why are their VBSs are way better than our, ah, oh, I don't like that. Instead of rejoicing in the fact that that church is faithfully proclaiming God's word and people are hearing the gospel and responding, they should be rejoicing. Instead, they're poo-pooing it. They're like, eh, I don't like that. And maybe, you know, some of them, when they go around town, people say, oh yeah, what do you think about that church? They're like, oh, don't go to that church. I hear the pastor beats his wife and is a drunkard. Don't go there. The same thing was happening with Paul. Paul's in, 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 this, in the city and, and, and people are just not being very nice. They have jealousy. They're proclaiming Christ out of this selfish ambition, this hostility, this rivalry. They're trying to cause more distress, more, oh, that's the Greek word, thelipsis, which is tribulation, trial, pressure in, 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 in Paul's... Um, imprisonment. Now, first century Rome was an honor-shame society, uh, and being in prison was something not to be proud of. It was a very shameful thing, uh, and it was equally shameful to know someone who was in prison, and so a lot of, uh, of prisoners uh, ended up losing fr- family and friends because, oh, that's very shameful, and so you have these individuals, some of these individuals uh, with envy and strife, selfish ambition, trying to cause problems with Paul, trying to bring possibly more shame upon him, as if Paul didn't need anything more, you know? He's already in prison, been dealing with a whole bunch of stuff, possibility of life or death, I, you know, and, and now brothers and sisters are against him. It must have been very, very difficult for, for Paul but look, look at his response. Verse 18. I mean, think about it. If you were to put yourself in that kind of context, you know, you've, you've just, you, you know, you've beaten, you've been beaten, you've been mistreated, you've been shamed, you're in prison, it's shameful. Everyone's like, ooh, you're, you're a bad person and all that. And all of a sudden, people who you would think you could trust and rely on, they're poo-pooing you. They're trying to cause more pain in your life. It's like, whoo, I'd like to give them the right hand of fellowship, you know, just kind of, just a real good one across the chin. Maybe the collar, what? A love tap? Okay, I don't know what kind of love that is, but (laughs) kids don't hang around him. Um, But uh, (laughs) look at Paul's response, verse 18. What then? Who cares? Only that in every way, in any, every manner, whether in pretense, false motives, that's the idea of only showing you know, for outward show, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, Christ is preached and declared, and in this I rejoice. Paul experiences joy, that, that resilient gladness. Who cares what they're saying? Who cares what they're trying to do, whether they have pure motives or not? Christ is still being proclaimed. That is awesome to me. 
He says, continuing on, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, some of you uh, may have been studying this and recognize that yes is the Greek word Allah, which is normally translated but, which to mark a strong contrast. But when that word is tied to the Greek word kai, I know some of you are going, this is fascinating, amazing stuff. But anyways, uh, when that word is attached to kai, there's an emphasis there. And so, yes, this can be translated, or it's emphatic, I shouldn't say. It, it, it's, it's emphatic. So, yes, this could be translated, yes, and I will rejoice. Or it could be translated, but I will still rejoice. It's like, you know, I'm rejoicing in this, but I'm continuing to rejoice in this other thing. Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. This will result in my deliverance through your prayers. Paul believed that prayers actually work, that God listens to prayers and God responds to prayers. And the provision, the supply, the additional help of the, whole, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. According to my earnest expectation, my intense anticipation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, Paul doesn't indicate um, that uh, in anywhere that he's actually, he's quoting scripture. But that phrase this will turn out for my deliverance is a word-for-word citation of the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the book of Job. Job chapter 13, believe verse 16. But in the book of Job, Job's experiencing suffering. Lots and lots of suffering. He's lost his kids, he's lost his property, he's lost his wealth, and and, uh, he's lost his health, and he's left with a nagging wife. And so he's experiencing lots and lots of suffering. And his, his friends, his supposedly good friends, who should be encouraging him, should be praying for him and grieving right alongside him, are actually rebuking him. Like, Job, the reason why you're suffering is because of sin in your life. And Job is trying to say, no, 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 I haven't done anything wrong. And so in chapter 13, uh, Job is bringing up this, uh, this metaphor of like standing before God and, and he's declaring, that he, he, he's saying that he is confident. He is extremely confident when all is said and done, when God has finally cross-examined him, he will be delivered. The word there, delivered, is soteria, which is mostly translated salvation. And um, you, it's often associated with our eternal salvation. You know, when Jesus comes back, either we go to be with Jesus or Jesus comes back, that's the ultimate salvation. Here... It's referring to vindication, being proved right. Paul is basically saying, I rejoice because I know when all is said and done, because of your prayers and the support and the, and the, the, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I will be able to boldly stand before Nero and make a defense for the gospel and show that I am right in doing what I'm doing. And I will boldly be able to proclaim that you must you know, uh, repent of your sins in order to be saved. And whether he allows me to live or die, it doesn't matter because I know Christ will be exalted. 
And that word that he uses for exalted has this idea of, in, of, of making something enlarged or, or amplified or magnified. And basically what, what Paul's saying is that his life, he views it as like a telescope. You know, when you look at the, at the, out at the night sky, those, the, you know, all the stars, I mean, those stars are massive, massive. From our perspective, that star just looks like a little twinkly light, right? But if you were to look at that star with a microscope, especially a really powerful microscope, then you get to see that. How big, oh, telescope, yeah, my telescope. Thank you, microscope, telescope. I know how to speak it correctly. Um, a telescope. When you look at a telescope at those stars, especially a really powerful telescope, that star gets bigger. And so for Paul, he's saying that's what he wants his life to be. I want my life to be a telescope for God's glory, to make God look bigger. I always think, you know, that's, that's what I want. I mean, I, I don't want to be a telescope for my glory because let's be honest, if, if I'm being really honest, I'm an almost 40-year-old. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm almost 40-year-old pastor at a small church in a small town that most of the United States doesn't know exists in a rural community. Okay, the, as far as the, the, the world, the rest of the world would say, that's not impressive. You know who, what is impressive though? Jesus. Jesus is impressive. And so we want to live our life as a telescope for Jesus or a microscope. The illustration could still work there too. So I was right either way. <laughs> so Paul continues on. Woo, got to hurry up. All right, for me to live is Christ. We're verse 21. Here we go, everybody. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the Greek, it literally says to live Christ, to die gain. That was a first century way of making a point. Uh, uh, one uh, um, pastor put it this way in, in describing what does it mean for when Christ says I, to live is, is, is Christ. Uh, this pastor says uh, it, it means life is filled up with occupied with Jesus in the sense that everything one does trusts, loves, hopes, obeys, preaches, follows, and so on is inspired by Jesus, is done for Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone gives inspiration, direction, meaning, and purpose to existence. I don't know, wow. And some of you may think that's a little bit too deep for this morning. But basically, just like the sun in our solar system, uh, Jesus was the center of Paul's life. And everything, and I mean everything, his desires, his, 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 his passions, his dreams, his, his purpose and meaning and significance was all, all revolved around Jesus. It's like, my life is Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. It's focused. It's saturated with Jesus. He says, and to die is gain. It's, it's this idea of profit, of advantage. You could not put this guy down. I mean, think about it. You know, okay, you're going to be beaten, Paul. We're going to beat you up. We're going to stone you. Jesus is still good. He's on his throne. And the music says, ha. Oh. You know, Paul, we're going we're gonna to put you in prison and you're going to suffer. Well, if it means uh, uh, the gospel advances and, 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 and people are inspired to proclaim the gospel, then I'm okay with that. Paul, Paul we're, we're going to kill you. Well, if I live, I'm living for Jesus. And if I die, I get to be with Jesus. It's a prophet for me. Bring it on. 
I mean, not to say that there was no fear there. I mean, he was a human being. There's no like, oh, I don't really know how they're going to kill me, but I don't want to know. But the fact is that wasn't his focus. His focus was Christ. His focus was Jesus. And dying, I get to be with Jesus. Um, Ignatius was a, a leader of the church in Antioch at the end of the first century. And while he was on the road heading for his own execution, he wrote a letter to one of his friends. And in it, he said, let fire and the cross, let the company of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so if only I may gain Christ Jesus. Whoa, some of you are like, that's a little bit too deep for this morning. But it's true. It's amazing. Can we honestly say that? If we were to fill in the blanks, for me to live is blank. What would we put in there? We have to really think through that. For me to live is friendship. For me to live is money. For me to live is success. For me to live is, and so on and so forth. A lot of people go and try to pursue Life that way, it doesn't lead to joy at all. It doesn't work. We looked at a passage in, in Ecclesiastes last week and how you know Solomon was like, he went varsity when it came to searching for happiness, right? He's like, I went here, I went here, I went here. Did not find it. It's foolish. It's chasing after the wind. It's vanity. Paul says, for me to live, Christ. To die, gain. And then he continues on. And I love this about Paul. Paul is being honest. He's experiencing pain. He's not candy-coating it. I'm experiencing pain. It's, I'm experiencing suffering. But he's not going to focus on that. It's so crazy. He, he goes uh, here in, in verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, and he considers that to be a, a, a real thing, like he's going to continue living on, this will mean fruitful labor for me. This will, this will be a life that, that produces good fruit. And I do not know which to choose. I, I, cannot, I cannot reveal what I prefer. But I am hard-pressed from both, both directions. It's like Paul's like standing here in the middle, and here's a good uh, uh, choice, and here's a really good choice, and they're pushing on him. He's like, I can't choose which one. I don't know. Having the desire, the longing to depart, literally to, to, to pack up your tent and move on to be with Christ. He's like, I desire that. I do desire to be in eternity with Jesus. For that is very much better that is far more superior far more preferable more excellent why because i'm out of the pain i'm out of the suffering i'm out of the temptation of the flesh it'll be awesome verse 24 yet to remain to continue on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake the word there could literally be translated it's indispensable for your sake paul's basically saying you need me you know, he's not trying to be like puff himself up and say, oh, I'm, I'm great and you know, all that. He just knows God has given him a mission and he's like, you guys need that. You need my services. I see God uh, wanting to use me. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For, for, for the progress. There's that word again for advancement, for your advancement and joy in faith so that you'd grow more and more in your, in your faith with Christ, so that your proud confidence, your grounds for boasting in me may abound, may overflow in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. 
Paul is suffering. He admits that. He's not trying to candy coat it, but he's not focusing on it. He's not dwelling on it so much that it's crippling him. He's focusing on Jesus and he's focusing on others. We talked about a couple of weeks ago, how do you get through what you're going through? One of the ways is worship. Here's another way. Focus on Jesus and focus on others. That'll help you get through what you're going through. Verse 27, Paul brings in the main point. This is what we would call in the ancient, uh, in the first century, the propicio. This is the proposition, the, the main point from which Paul is going to expound on for the rest of the letter. He says, verse 27, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word there, conduct yourself, literally means to be a citizen. Now, again, Philippi was a Roman colony, and, uh, and because it was a Roman colony, those who lived in the city were considered Roman citizens. But Paul's not going to focus on that Roman citizenship. He, later on in the letter, he, 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 he describes Christians as citizens of heaven. Another way of describing that is citizens of God's eternal kingdom. And so he's, he's, he's saying is that as citizens of God's kingdom, we are to conduct ourselves, we are to lead our lives, govern our lives in a manner that is worthy the word worthy is, is, is axios. It doesn't mean to earn. What it literally means is to um, weigh, uh, having, it means literally to have the same weight as another. So basically what Paul's saying is live your life in such a way that it weighs as much as the gospel you profess. Live in such a way that is appropriate, that is a fitting for someone who follows Jesus. Now, this is really, really cool how Paul um, brings up this command, because this is a command right here to conduct your, your, yourselves, that this command is attached to the context of suffering. He's been talking about suffering and experiencing joy and suffering, and then he brings up conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, in a way that's fitting, suitable for those who follow Christ. Why? Because people are watching people are watching you. Churches are to be outposts of the kingdom of God. And what are they supposed to see? God's love and Christ's likeness. You can go on and on and on. And especially how we view and respond to suffering. They're watching us. The world is watching us. It was watching Paul. Paul, you say you follow Christ. I'm going to see if you really believe what you really believe. Jesus told his disciples that you are the light of the world. We live in a dark place. You are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill. Live your life in such a way that people see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. People are watching us. So he says, conduct yourselves in a manner that is appropriate for the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, whether I, you know, I'm, I'm still away from you, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. The word standing uh, firm is a military term that would have been especially relevant to the people in Philippi because Philippi was, a lot of the residents were retired Soldiers, retired Roman soldiers. The uh, uh, Nero made a deal with a lot of these uh, soldiers saying, you know, hey, we will give you land and citizenship if you agree to move into Philippi and be ready in case you need to defend the empire in that area. And so a lot of soldiers would move into to Philippi. 
And so Paul uses this military language that you are standing firm. Literally, you are holding your ground. Now, holding your ground, that's not a passive posture, right? That's active. The enemy's coming at you and you're holding your ground and you're gonna do everything in your power to make sure you hold that line. You're standing firm. Christians are standing firm in, the, in one spirit. Bible says that we've been baptized with one spirit into one family. Paul then says, with one mind, that literally means one soul, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word striving together is soon athleo. It's where we get the word athlete. That's another uh, a term that would have been pretty relevant to the people in Philippi because there was a, a big stadium in the city. And every year they would host these you know, tournaments, kind of like their mini version of the, of, the, of the Olympics. And so that word there for striving together literally means to wrestle in company with, to, to labor alongside. So it kind of gives a picture of a football team, you know. In a football team, everybody has their place. Everybody has their job to do, but they're one team. And they are taking their, their you know, their direction from the coach, and they're all working together right alongside each other for one goal, and that is to make a touchdown. And what Paul's bringing up here is the reality that as citizens of the kingdom, we can't do life alone. We're not called to live life solo. We're called to be in fellowship with one another. We're called to, to hold our ground together, to strive, labor, work alongside one another for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. It's not a one-man band. It's a team effort. We are one body. Each every one of us uh, contributes. And he continues on. Verse 28. In, uh, so he says uh, that you are standing firm, you're holding your ground in one spirit, with one mind, one soul, striving together, working alongside one another for the faith of, G of the gospel, and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction, which is evidence of destruction for them, or proof of their destruction, but salvation for you, and that too from God. What, what he's saying is, is, you know, again, this is kind of this military language here. It's you're, you're holding your ground. And as you're holding your ground for the cause of Christ and for the sake of the gospel, there's going to be opposition. But you're not to be afraid of that opposition. You're to hold your ground, work together, link arms. You're in fellowship. You're, you're, you're fighting for the cause of Christ. And as you do this, this is a sign. God's going to prove his word is true. He's going to prove his word is true. That those who oppose the gospel, who, who hate the gospel, they will be judged by God. But for those who love Jesus and, and, and proclaim the gospel, they will be ultimately saved. So keep on going. Keep on, keep on going. Even in the midst of trials, people are watching you. Verse 29. For to you it has been granted... This is a, the word here for granted is a, the root of it is where we get the word grace. It's this idea of favor. And so it, it, this is a favorable gift that uh, uh, has been given by God to the church. For it has been favorably granted, favorably bestowed for Christ's sake. And he's gonna, he's gonna bring up two gifts. Not only to believe in him, 
Now, some people will say, so belief in Christ is a gift. That means if God never gave us the gift of belief, we would have never believed in God. And some theologian will go down that route and it's just, that, that's confusing. That's not what the Bible says. And it does, it's not what the grammar is saying. Grammatically, this is in the present tense. It's not referring to your belief, uh, you know, at salvation. It's referring to your continued belief, your continued trust and confidence in God. It's like that God gives us the ability to continue trusting in him. This is encouraging. Kind of a couple of weeks back, we talked about the assurance of our salvation is that when we truly follow Jesus, God promised never to leave us or forsake us. We are his. He will never let us go. Similar, you know, similarly, we have been given the, the, the Holy Spirit and because the Holy Spirit working in us and through us, we will never have the desire to walk away from him. Further, we've been generously, favorably given the ability to continue trusting in him throughout the rest of our life. That's cool. That's encouraging. Then he buzz kills it right here. So you've been granted, graciously granted, bestowed for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict you saw in me and now here to be in me. He views suffering as a gift. How many of us would be, that's not a gift I want? (laughs) Come Christmas, I hope that's not in that box under the tree. You know, I don't want that. Yay, Merry Christmas, suffering and pain. No one wants that. But Paul says it is a gift. This is a very, very hard passage. Very, very hard passage. I personally going through it, I mean, not only the sense that it's a lot. Paul's getting, you know, getting a lot of stuff on this page, but just the idea of, Suffering. Suffering is hard. It's not a topic that's like, yay, let's talk about it in a nice little coffee chat. You know, it's just, no. Some, some say that Christians are gluttons for punishment, just like Jesus. You know, that, that we, we, we run to suffering. We embrace it because that's what Jesus did. And it's like, no, you don't understand. You know, Jesus did not want to suffer. He prayed that he that let this cup pass, but he willingly suffered for us. Same way you look throughout the scripture, none of the people, David and, and Paul, none of them wanted to suffer. They're not saying, Lord, please bless me with suffering. No, they didn't want to experience. Who would say that? Some weirdo. But Paul's like, no, this, I don't like suffering, but I see it as a gift. I can find joy in that suffering. There's a, a, a number of years ago when we were still living in Southern California, there was a, a, a marriage conference, a Christian marriage conference that was near, um, taking place near our, where we lived. And um, this uh, young couple went, uh, attended the, uh, the, the marriage conference and the wife had recently come to know Christ and, but her husband had, you know, didn't, and, you know, she was really trying to encourage him to come to church and whatever, wouldn't go to church, but he would go with her to this marriage conference. And so they go to the marriage conference and he hears the gospel presented and he responds and he gets saved. 
that day, and she's just so happy. Oh my goodness, my prayers are answered. They're rejoicing. They go back to their hotel because they lived in another state. And uh, the husband goes into the bathroom and hears this terrible crash. And she, he goes outside the bathroom and a drunk driver had hit the, the, the curb and sailed across the parking lot and hit, landed right into or crashed right into the hotel room, killing the wife who was pregnant, three months pregnant with their first kid. And that, I remember that came out. We, you know, we just had this really fun, amazing time. And I remember hearing about that. Someone came to Christ. A lot of people came to Christ that day. I'm like, wow, what an amazing thing. And then to hear this. And I, honestly, I was like, why? Why, God? Why would you do that? Why would you let that happen? I mean, they just celebrated his new birth and they were going to celebrate the birth of their new baby and it was going to be good. And that happened. I mean, that's not like getting a broken bone that's going to get you know, healed after a couple of months. That's a deep cut that he may never fully recover from. Why? Some people have tried to answer this question and have unfortunately come to bad conclusions regarding God. They'll say, well, you know, God's not very powerful. You know, evil and wickedness is just way too powerful and God's not that strong. And so that's why we experience suffering and pain. But the Bible's like, no, that's not right. The Bible, all is, God is all powerful, all powerful. You see that in creation. You're gonna see that at the, the end when God comes and establishes his eternal kingdom. God is all powerful. All other powers and authorities receive their delegated power and authority from him. So it's like, okay, well, if God's all-powerful, then he must not be all-knowing. You know, it's like, oops, I didn't see that happening. That's why we experience pain and suffering. But again, the Bible's very, very clear. God is eternal. He knows not only the, the beginning, the end. He knows everything that's going on. He knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God knows everything. And so then it's okay, well, then if God's all-powerful and he, if he's all-knowing, then he has the power to stop suffering. He knows that it's going to happen, but he doesn't. So therefore, God's not good. And the, again, the Bible's really clear. Uh, uh, um, John, the Apostle John, writing one of his letters, says that in him is light, that he is light and, in, and there is no darkness in him, that he is love, not that he just expresses love, but no, that's, very, that's part of his very existence. He is love. He is good. And we see that throughout the entire biblical narrative. God created this world, chose to have a, a relationship with Adam and Eve. He didn't have to, but he chose to. They messed that relationship up. And the rest of the Bible, you see God having a plan, uh, establishing a plan to rescue his people, to pursue his people. And it's, it's all ultimately expressed when Christ dies on the cross. God is good. God is someone we can, we can trust and we can, we can um, uh, uh, listen to and obey. So if God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing and God is good, why suffering? And I think of Isaiah uh, chapter 55, verse eight and nine, where God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as far as, the, as, as, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now the context is, you know, is trying to understand God's mercy. It's like your mercy is incomprehensible but the truth is still the same. Honestly, I can't give you an answer why people suffer. 
as they do. I can't, I can't give you the answer why some people suffer here and others don't, you know, God chooses to allow suffering here and doesn't choose to allow suffering here or remove suffering here and doesn't remove suffering. I can't give that answer. And when you read the Bible, that's not really what they focus on either. Here in this passage, Paul is not focusing on the why. He's like, no, I'm experiencing pain. I'm experiencing suffering. But here's the thing. God's not wasting it. God's not wasting it. He's using it to, to form me more into the image of his son. He's using it to advance the gospel. He's using it to inspire other Christians to boldly proclaim uh, 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 the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm okay. Whatever comes my way, I can rejoice. I can exper- experience this resilient gladness. Paul understood that suffering. God will use that suffering. And I know that's a kind of a, a, a hard pill to swallow, but it's the truth. You know, some people will, you know, they'll, they'll hear that passage from Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. They'll say, well, that's a cop-out. That's not a cop-out, that's the truth. To, for us to try to understand the mind of Christ, I mean, the mind of the infinite God, I mean, good luck with that. But we can we, we, we do have guidance on how to view that suffering that we go through, how to respond to that suffering. The world is watching us, and so we want to make it make a, be a good example. Um, I, I, I would like to, before we close, I, I know that there are some people in this room right now who are experiencing suffering. Currently, you are experiencing some pain and some you're struggling and... Um, you know, it, it, it's, just, it's just been a really rough year. It's been maybe a few rough years. But um, I'd like to do, do something for me. We go ahead and stand up. Go ahead, everybody stand up. We're going to be end up closing in a song anyways. You're going to stand up anyways. But uh, um, go ahead and stand up. And uh, if you are experiencing suffering, a, a, a lot of pain right now, it's a season that's really rough right now, um, don't need to share what's going on, don't need anything, would you just go ahead and just sit down? If you are experiencing pain and suffering right now, this is a season that's hard, just go ahead and sit down. And I want everybody who's standing up to just kind of look around at those people who are sitting down, and I want to give an opportunity for us to pray for them. You can just pray silently. You can go to them, put your hand on their shoulder, let them know we are in fellowship together. You're not in this alone. And so let's uh, go ahead and, and pray together. Um, and uh, yeah, let's just be the church, love each other, and then I'll close in prayer. So let's go ahead and, and do that.